Right. But the thing is, so like you broke your probation. You were you had people's lives in your hands. Two people died. We don't understand why or what happened. And we feel like you were one of those doctors that we're talking about are part of the corruption. Maybe you had a change of mind and you want to be better. But the first thing you need to do is you need to be vulnerable and be honest with everybody here and now. Greg, I don't think I'm willing to have this aired. And if you air this, um, I think that it's a it's a, a poor reflection on you. It's, I think that, it's live already. Yeah. We're tapping in to surpassing expectations from the most successful people in the modern day and honing in on new foresight, methodologies, and clairvoyance you never knew. This is your transformation station with your host, Greg Favaza. Robert Yoho, or are you, you're no longer a doctor, are you? So how would I address you? How would you like to be addressed? Let's, let's take that route. Okay. So I got your question. The answer to that question is, is call me Dr. Yoho. And then I will correct you and say, you don't have to doctor me. I've signed out of the medical profession. Just call me Robert. So just go ahead and be respectful the first time you address me. And then I'll say, you don't have to say that. Greg, I'm, I've, 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 uh, you know, I'm, I'm no longer with the uh, established thing. Just call me Robert. Okay. Sorry about that. I forgot. Yeah. No, I had no to worries. Sign you. <laughs> I'm like, wait, wait. No, no, that's on? totally cool. Whatever. Okay. Robert, give us, give us a little snapshot of your background and tell us what your message is towards the world. I'm 67 years old. I've had uh, a complete career in medicine, including initially becoming an emergency physician, then practicing in the emergency room, then transitioning into family practice, and finally for the last bulk of my career, 30 plus years, doing cosmetic surgery, uh, doing breast uh, augmentation, liposuction, facelifts, and so on. My snapshot is that um, over the last several years of my career, I had uh, a real awakening and I started reading general medicine and I became concerned about what I eventually thought of as medical corruption. I had two patients die in my office within f- six month period and it was intensely wow. disturbing and it rewrote my psychology and I was nearing a retirement anyway. So I started reading and writing and eventually put together these two books, which took four years. So the medical practice is a mess. Everyone knows that. Everybody knows there's something wrong, but understanding just what's going on, the doctors don't even get it. Some of us, it's like uh, the old Indian story about trying to figure out what an elephant is. Some Some people might hold on to the elephant's toenail. Some might hold on to the elephant's uh, nose or trunk, and they only perceive that part of it. For example, some general internists understand that cardiology has gone off the rails, that angioplasty basically doesn't work very well, if at all. And most of them have some clue that cardiac surgery for coronary artery disease doesn't work either. And I can describe those in detail later, or you can read my book. They're not the maybe the easiest way to understand that where medicine has gone wrong. Sure. We all understand. You want me to ramble on here? No, no, I'd rather not. Yes. No worries. That's good. So you are a whistleblower. I'm a whistleblower. I'm a healthcare whistleblower. Okay. So 
let's rewind a little bit. You had two patients die in your office. Uh, if you can, you share anything you can share that's okay for the public, and caused by what exactly? Well, um, any cosmetic surgeon has generally has one fatality during their career. And I had two in a relatively short period of time, but one of them was um, under the care or the operation of another surgeon. So I really only count mine as one. The circumstances of this case, uh, I don't think it's going to be valuable to discuss in detail. You can point fingers or assign blame or um, you know, assign causes, but it's a it's a bit technical for this discussion. And suffice it to say that I did my best, and the patient still had an unexpected fatality. In cosmetic surgery, you're not supposed to have fatalities, you know, and nobody understands them. But when you operate on thousands of thousands of patients, there are some people who are due to die the next day, or they're very unhealthy, or circumstances during the surgery um, cause a fatality. So it's just a statistical inevitability if, you, if you've done 10,000 cosmetic cases like I, I have. The fatality rate overall for cosmetic surgery, for certain kinds of cosmetic surgery, is as high as one in a couple thousand for tummy tucks that's quite hazardous for liposuction it's much lower it might be one in 25,000 um, but uh, anyway that's that's as long do you and need to of. have a, a specialty do you have to be certified to do liposuction well I passed the boards in cosmetic surgery so I am uh, heavily qualified based on my experience. And at the time I'd had these things, I was, um, I was at the end of my career and my, my experience is, was comprehensive and, and my knowledge base was comprehensive. So, but you did obtain a certification that says that you are allowed to do this and you're not just a regular doctor that's performing these, these, uh, surgeries. Of course. I've been involved in that specialty for three plus decades. And I, my certifications were, I've got a 20-page curriculum vitae. Oh, uh, can you explain what that means? That's a resume. Okay. I've got a 20-page resume. Anyway, go ahead. All right. So it's a little off topic. No, no. I just, I, I want to just pa paint the picture because sure. I came across some articles online and I just wanted to understand because it says cosmetic surgeon license suspended after two patients uh, died. So if I can put yeah. that on here. No, that's that's good. Um, th yeah, the story is essentially that after one. there's any adverse consequence, these um, medical boards, uh, they, they basically go after you. And they're required after any bad consequence to... Um, investigate. And mm -hmm. so I underwent their investigation. I never did the, the essentially the trial and I compromised for a probationary period and I resigned my license, um, within, um, you know, a, few, a couple of years of that occurring rather okay. because I was due to retire. Okay. So if, if you can just explain this, cause I want to make sure that everything is clear and there's no misunderstanding when people look you up so it's, if you can see that, okay, I'll make sure that's out of the way. All right, so this is an article right here that I came across in 
2017, if you can just give me the understanding of what they're saying about you and with your actions. Well, I think we've uh, gone into this enough. I don't think uh, I don't think we have to uh, go into it much more. The state medical boards are required to investigate. They're uh, they're pretty dr- draconian about their uh, investigations. I my reputation is uh, virtually unsullied before this time period. And uh, you know, when I eventually I had checked out of medicine under this um, cloud of uh, you know, this cloud of censure, but it's sort of an an inevitable consequence of having a fatality in your office. And one of these wasn't mine. They were, it was another physician. No one could really understand why I was investigated for that one, Mm -hmm. but it was in my surgical center. Okay. All right. And, um, hmm, I don't know where I want to take this, but let's, let's continue a little forward and, your message is to look at the corruption. Now, what exactly is corrupted in the medical field? Because that is a large dumpster worth of corruption. And I want to, I want to figure out exactly where you, where you focused on. Well, other physicians and commentators have written about sectors of this thing. And like mm-hmm. I say, they understand the to- elephant's toenail or something, but I, reviewed the whole thing. And all of my work was entirely derivative, Greg. Mm-hmm. It wasn't uh, anything I made up. So uh, sort of starting at the top, uh, the insurance industry takes off 20% of the entire gross revenues of healthcare, which are approaching $4 trillion a year. It's twenty, almost 20% of our gross domestic product. Mm-hmm. This is twice per capita or twice per person what um, other developed countries spend on healthcare. They spend 10% and Singapore gets by with about 5% and they have excellent Mm -hmm. care. And the other part of the puzzle is that about 50% of what we're doing is um, wrong. It's not, it doesn't work or it's actually harmful to the patients. And that's well known academically too. That's not something uh, you can quibble about. So we've got this system that over treats and doesn't treat well and is twice as expensive as the rest of the world. Warren Buffett called it the tapeworm of the American economy because we have to figure out something to do with this or it's going to eat us all. The growth of healthcare is um, something like 17% a year, far above the inflation growth. So um, this thing is a, it's a big problem. The corruption extends into big pharma, which has more criminal settlements than any industry in history, more criminal settlements by federal prosecutors. Mm-hmm. So it, they, those guys basically spend all this money um, doing these studies that they essentially ruin um, with fake statistics, and they're allowed to conceal half their they're, – they're allowed to conceal their studies, which can make the ones that they don't conceal look pretty good. Mm-hmm. For example, the human papillomavirus vaccine – they concealed half the studies and vaccine, the vaccine was abandoned by Japan, which arguably has a, as good a public health system as we do. Only 1% of Japanese take the HPV vaccine, but I'll bet you've had it within your age group. I'm sure you've had it. 
Um, and virtually all of us, all of our kids are forced to take this thing, which is not, uh, which has not been proven to effective, to be effective. And the, if there's one thing I learned in the course of studying all this stuff, um, it was that small numbers and big claims are something that you have to realize is probably just nonsense. And if you don't understand the reasoning because it's too complicated, that likely means somebody is lying to you for a commercial purpose. So the new golden rule, of course, is those with the gold make the rules. And that's what we're seeing here uh, with uh, Big Pharma. I can go on about the individual specialties corruptions if you like. Uh, uh, no, not yet. Let's uh, rewind a little bit. How did you uncover this information with the insurance and what they're doing? Well, this is a freely available information, and I went from one source to another and Googled uh, around, and uh, it's it's not the narrative, the sort of propaganda narrative that we've we've been hearing, and as you may have sort of discovered, a lot of the common narratives are commercial interests expressing uh, attempts to make to profit on whatever is going on. The FDA. There are many books about the FDA and how, how problematic it is. It's a $5 billion effort to control an industry that mm-hmm. is something like, I mean, it's, it's in the trillions. And it's just, it's incapable of doing it. And in the early 2000s, a law was passed that says their funding would be primarily from user fees, which are direct payments from the pharmaceutical companies to the FDA. So this turned, many observers felt that this turned the FDA into believing these companies were clients rather than something to be regulated. So, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mess of economic interests. And okay. if you, have you read uh, Caldini's Influence book? That's an important no, thing yet. for your readers to, yeah. to look at um, because that shows that any exchange of value poisons the well. In other words, if you accept money or even a meal from someone, you cannot be objective about what they're up to. You get it? In other words, the pharma companies come into the doctor's office of service dinner and they they give us free samples and do all these things for us. And it basically destroys our ability to be objective and do what we're supposed to do, which is focus on patient outcomes and our and do the best thing for our patients. One of the most egregious examples of this is oncology, cancer therapy, where over half, perhaps 75% of these guys' incomes is from retailing chemotherapy drugs. Now, if you were a doctor and I was a doctor and I told you, here's a product or a medication, sell this and you know, you can keep 25% or 20%. Mm -hmm. That's a federal crime called capping, and we'd both go to jail if we were caught. But there's an exception for these pharmaceutical companies, and they're allowed to to do this, and they've basically got the oncologists or the cancer doctors completely bought out. It's not Mm -hmm. like they give them meals or anything like that. They, and the story gets worse. They are incentivized by the milligram in other words, they're incentivized to use larger doses because they get paid more for larger doses. Now, of course, doctors are trained in ethics and we're one of the most highly skilled and best trained groups of large groups in America. But it's impossible to ignore influences like this. And if, for that reason and others, perhaps more importantly, 
oncology is almost completely ineffective. There are about five or six entities or diseases that can be effectively treated, testicular cancer, some lymphomas and leukemias and so on. But most of it, and maybe 95% of it, the only improvement with all that chemotherapy and all that toxic stuff is two months of improved survival. And this is recently published information. This is not that's not something that's controversial. So you got a lot of lot of information to unpack there. One, uh, were you one of those doctors that were influenced to prescribe different medications than you thought were necessary? Greg, I am like Rip Van Winkle. I was in a, in a side uh, bywater of medicine. I was doing cosmetic surgery for the bulk of my career. Now, we did have a few commercial interests. The you know We bought breast implants, and we mm-hmm. bought uh, Botox, and so on. And those companies are aggressive, and they did our best their best to buy our attention with all kinds of perks. But it, we weren't in a field like psychiatry, which is probably the most heavily influenced field, or oncology, which to my view, is set up in such a way that that objectivity is uh, impossible. Or orthopedics, which, you know, they have enormously close ties with the implant manufacturers. There's many ways money exchange hands there. I mean, so I woke up because of these events in my um, medical career, and I started looking around, and I didn't like what I saw. And it took me at least two years to figure out and another year to write this mm-hmm. book and get it down to the level where I thought everyone could understand it. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, there's thousands of books published every day on Amazon and getting mm-hmm. attention for this is, is almost, it seems like almost impossible. I'm, I'm obscure. Yeah. I'm obscure. I've sold less than a thousand co- copies so far. Well, see what I'm gathering is I feel like maybe you were one of those doctors that were influenced and that were utilizing alternatives to gain for financial gain but then you woke up and realize that's it's the wrong path and that you want to do better greg it is true that uh, religious converts are sometimes the most avid uh proselytizers but um my uh i was in a cash pay business right and the biggest conflict of interest in medicine is um, fee-for-service insurance reimbursement, which means mm-hmm. the doctor gets paid for doing something, particularly the surgeons get paid for um, operating. So they have a conflict, and they, which is a nice way to say it, uh, and they are incentivized to do all kinds of things. Now, in my field, um, it was entirely paid by the patients. So mm-hmm. um, you know, if I had any uh, adverse incentives, it was to... Um, per, perhaps do more surgery than I uh, than than was indicated, but it's an entirely cosmetic surgery is entirely voluntary, and this isn't much of a problem. I mean, overselling perhaps is a problem in cosmetic surgery, and the people with the slickest uh, offices, the most advertising, and so on, maybe they are uh, overselling what they do and trying to get people to put in more breast implants than than possible, but. The the thing about uh, cosmetic surgery is it's is is entirely voluntary, and the, the the people, primarily women, who are interested, they pretty much know what they want when they come in, and they they uh, you know. So I don't I don't think I don't think that it was a big it, it, cosmetic surgery is one of the smallest commercial commercially influenced uh, areas in medicine. Okay, can you and, walk us through that ones. process yeah. on how people were to 
for because it's I'm very unfamiliar, just unqualified to understand this. But for me and for everybody else, like what is the process for someone who wants to do cosmetic surgery? And then how do you and then what's your position and what you do and how do you ensure everything happens accordingly? Well, let's instead of that, let's talk about the conflicts in a more uh, obvious field like um, cardiac surgery. Right. In cardiac surgery, these guys have patients who are pre-selected with uh, chest pain or some other problem. And they have supposedly they have a magic bullet, which is coronary artery bypass grafting. But the statistics in their studies have shown that there are only one narrow subgroup of perhaps. So I, I came across this and I just wanted to make sure, please do not believe the the bias. So I like, I don't know who would write this review, but I mean, is that normal? Is this like a normal thing that's been happening? Well, I can't read the review, but you can see down below, there's a five-star review or a six-star review. So um, anyone that has an online presence has, um, adverse reviews. I mean, it doesn't, there's no doubt about that. And they also, um, have, uh, well, you know, it, competitors. Yeah, listen, it says Dr. Yahoo never had my chart and no idea of how the surgery was performed until I corrected him. So I, I just want to understand if that's a normal thing that, that doctors are doing because right now, cause we we're blowing the whistle on the healthcare industry. That's right. So how do we arm ourselves so we can survive what's happening right now? Because it, it's the most largest well, and most corrupt industry in America, right? Yeah. I think the best – it, look, it's a problem. And uh, that review could have easily been written by a competitor, and that's <laughs> that's what they do. I mean, it's a sad deal. My reviews were almost universally positive during the time that I practiced. Which you're right. Um, I have come across those. My, I, yeah. I'm not here but to bash here's you. How we, I'm, here's I'm here how we just to get to the ourselves. truth. I understand. Here's how we protect ourselves. Here's how we protect ourselves. Sure. Um, first of all, the economic interests involved in medicine are so unbelievably powerful. You know, the healthcare is the size of the federal government. Okay, so the federal government tax revenues are less than $4 trillion, right? Now, the size of the federal government, of course, is bigger than this. Mm-hmm. Is that a vapor? Is that a vape? Yes, that is a vape. I definitely <laughs> Okay, that's I not good it. for you, dude. Yeah. You might want to <laughs> consider you know, reading about that, but I, I think that's about. You know, the, the bad thing in vapes is um, nicotine. Yeah, nicotine is primarily responsible. So if that one has nicotine, oh, definitely does. Oh, definitely. Okay, so all right. What what about the the coronavirus? Should we avoid that? Well, now your question is: Do we avoid the coronavirus? Yeah. How how do we avoid that? And also getting the shots. Like is like that. Is that any helpful for us from not even from not catching it? Well, now here's how I. Uh, I I watched the whole thing develop just like you did, and Mm -hmm. I I was seeing it through my lens of uh, my medical corruption background, and I 
knew that the only robust measure of the coronavirus disease was fatalities, right? Yes. All these other, yeah, from the start, I knew that. And I followed the fatalities carefully on various websites, and I saw them go up, and then I saw them start to go down, and then the, then I saw the figures disappear. So I, I quickly understood that the narratives on the coronavirus were incorrect. I also understood that Big Pharma, who had produced the vaccines, were liars and they had undergone all these criminal allegations that they've settled, you know, billions of dollars every single year, Greg. And so I had my doubts from the start. And I, the last thing I understood was I understood that the vaccines they had produced over the last 20 years were completely ineffective. In other words, the flu vaccine, you can read about that on CochraneReviews.com. And that's the most respected source in medicine. The flu vaccine does not decrease the chance of pneumonia or all the other stuff that they purport it to do, you know, which the flu is not a very consequential disease, but it doesn't help the chance of pneumonia. They've got this other thing called Tamiflu, which doesn't work either. And that's all been refuted. And I mentioned already the HPV vaccine, which was the other vaccine that they came up with in the last 20 years. And this doesn't work. At least Japan doesn't think it, it works at all because they they recognize that we threw out, they the companies threw out half the studies. And wow. because of that, they, they threw out the vaccine from Japan. But it's still being given here. So I, I knew that big pharma was a real problem and i had heavy doubts about a vaccine and then when i read this idea that it was 95 percent efficacious i just laughed because mm -hmm. and of course now we're realizing that that was a complete lie that it, it's not very efficacious it's not really a vaccine it doesn't prevent subsequent cases 70 percent of the new cases are in previously vaccinated people and it does not in, in confer immunity while the getting the disease completely confers immunity. The last part of the puzzle, which is the most sickening thing to me, is we have two robust treatments for COVID, right? We've got ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, both of which are drugs which are off patent, they're cheap, and they're not toxic at all. We give, we give Plaquenil, which is hydroxychloroquine, to arthritic patients every day for years. But these things are being covered up. They're being censured by big tech. And it's an unbelievable scene. The other thing that helps in all likelihood is taking vitamin D. And see, vitamin D, we have these enormous studies from Scandinavia, 250,000 patients. And the ones with higher D levels have much fewer serious health consequences. They're in better shape. Now, this does not prove that giving D prevents COVID, right? But it's very suggestive. And D is cheap. Everyone should take that. Mm. Okay. So Lysol doesn't work. Well, I don't have, I don't want to specifically address Lysol. I'm not familiar with, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, and the, the thing about the masks and the social distancing, there are, the, remember my rule of thumb, okay? There are various studies and they're contradictory. Mm -hmm. I think the bulk of the evidence uh, refute the idea that either one of those does anything. But in a situation where there's controversy, you have to look at where the money is coming from and where there's heavy controversy, you have to discount the whole thing and realize that what it's probably saying is it doesn't work at all. 
if there's huge controversy in small numbers, if, especially if they claim that a small statistical percentage is the conclusion of the study that is, quote, statistically significant at whatever level, mm. that means there are a large number of people studied and it doesn't work very well. So there is a dark side to the medical industry. Well, I mean, w- what I say is you qu- you started to quote my, uh, my introduction. I, I thought that I was opening a can of worms, but what I found was a dumpster full of worms. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've gone into a couple of the specialties. I mean, the, the psychiatry is particularly egregious um, because they, they uh, certain commentators have said that they're the amount of money per per person they get from big pharma is higher than any other field. The other thing that's true about psychiatry has a large group of people who actually deny their utility altogether. And I'm not just talking about Scientologists. There's there's a, a large group of psychologists and other commentators and researchers who think that their their whole thing with those medications doesn't work. And basically what has happened with them is they did studies that didn't inclu- include good control groups. A control group is necessary to understand whether something works. They're what's called observational studies. And they they essentially soap bubbles. So they do everything based on their judgment and they use highly toxic and addictive medications. One class of which called the atypical antipsychotics decreases lifespan by 10 to 20 years. It's an unbelievable scene. And those are promiscuously used, especially in the U.S. military, which you have some experience with not the drugs, but the military, you had friends that were taking a whole grab bag of medications that were given by the damn psychiatrists. And these things, they they don't go away when you leave the military. You're addicted to the darn things, and it's very hard to get off of them. It takes, you have to actually cut the drugs up and do tapering doses over many months and realize that you're going to get anxiety and depression during the period that you're withdrawing from the drug. I mean, it's a a terrible, terrible problem. We so, have the, just one more thing about psychiatry. Sure. Um, since they didn't have adequate control groups, the control or the placebo groups, we don't have any studies from America that show the drugs work. The only control studies we have is from the third world. In the third world, they can't afford the drugs, and so their outcomes are better than ours. Isn't that crazy? In these psych diseases go up and then they go down, right? They wax and wane over the person's lifetime, and they become chronic when you give them the drugs. And our social security disability went up in tandem with the drug use, which is suggestive that it was caused by the drug use. It's very suggestive. We've got 17% of the entire populace on on anti-psych drugs, right? We've got 50 to 70% of the entire populace on prescriptions. It's insane. So now I'm curious, like, where is the money coming from? Since we, with COVID, everything that's being Good pushed, pushed out, where's the money coming from? Good question. Okay. So we historically have showered money out of the sky on the medical industry. And so what happened, in other words, we gave it to them using um, third-party administrators or insurance company administrators. Now, insurance, as I said, is a layer that sits on top of our entire system and consumes about 20% conservatively of the entire $3.8 or $4 trillion gross. It's an incredible, incredible mistake. And so through these third-party, they're calling third-party administrators, including Medicare and these insurance companies, the money has just flowed freely into healthcare. And 
it's gone into these pharma companies. Now, Big Pharma is a $1.3 trillion worldwide operation. 50% of the profits, 40 to 50% of the profits are in U.S. alone, which is only 5% of the um, population of the world. I mean, it's, it's, it's a wild scene. So the money is coming from our federal government and our insurance. And if you make $40,000, you're paying about 10% or eight to $10,000 in healthcare expenses, whether you know it or not, uh, whether it comes out of the company or it comes out of your pocket. It's an incredible thing. I mean, you can barely make ends meet on your 40,000 a year after taxes. And one quarter of that is, is healthcare expenses. So, it's, it's interesting information. Are you familiar with uh, the company called QTC? Well, I don't know anything about them, no. Uh, okay. and Because uh, I, was, I was looking at it, and I just noticed a correlation within, uh, like with the stock market that crashed back in, 2000, back in 2008, and then all of a sudden there's a correlation with uh, veterans through their pension. They get switched over to QTC to try to from my understanding, to eliminate or to downsize. That was happened. And then again, recently, and I'm, I'm looking at it as an, okay, so that's 2008. Now I see a connection again with uh, COVID that they're now looking at veterans. So I feel like that's one place, to my understanding, that they're getting money to start to help pay what's, what's going on. Well, it appear, appears apparent to me that there are heavy connections between the tech companies and pharma. Yes. And I mean, obviously, these tech, tech companies are enormously wealthy, but pharma, I mean, their profit margins, they're, here's one quick uh, factoid. Healthcare lobbying is bigger, and I don't think I mentioned this before, but it's bigger, it's bigger than oil, natural gas, banking, and what's the other one? All combined. I mean, they, they're so wealthy. Pfizer has 40 to 50% profit margins, which is insane. I mean, the an average competitive industry has 10% profit margins. So the money is raining out of the sky on these, these uh, corporations, and they are spending freely to influence anyone they can to produce bigger profits. They're emphasis is to their shareholders and not uh, to patients. And the doctors, hold on, many of us are very idealistic. And I I don't want to, you know, we got off track a little bit, but Mm -hmm. I don't want to claim that all of medicine is useless. There are many, many miracles to be found. There are many caring doctors, and I've got examples of that in my book. No, that's that's really interesting. And there's, right now, I want to cover as far as... uh, how do we like like what are some red flags patients should be aware of when choosing the procedures and medical treatment good question okay so first of all if you're young and you don't have many problems uh many times your best choice is to ignore ignore things unless they're um because a lot of what the doctors do is look look for billing codes and they may introduce a cascade of medical services that is expensive and somewhat hazardous and may even produce fatalities. The screening procedures like mammograms and screening, even screening for blood cholesterol, 
they just don't work very well. And they introduce a lot of medical care that isn't, isn't so good. So if you're young, the rule of thumb is try to stay away, get the cheapest health insurance you can. Yeah. If you're older, the problems become more complicated. And there are times, many times, when the doctors can do you an awful lot of good. If you need surgery, if you're in pain, if you're symptomatic somehow, you got to see that guy. They're very difficult to judge. And if you have a healthcare background, you have a better chance. If you have a friend with a healthcare background to represent you, if you have one of these complicated problems, um, you can get a better idea. You want to do your own reading. But the other great thing now is since COVID, we have the ability to go virtually and consult with anyone we want. You can go to Stanford or Harvard or wherever and consult with the best doctors in the country. And believe you me, those guys are smarter than the average bear. They, they're so competitive there that they're, it's like 100 times more competitive to get into Stanford than it is to get into UCLA. I mean, it's insane. And they're, they not only have good intellectual skills, they have good patient skills and good interpersonal skills. So you'll, you'll find very, they're not all perfect, but you'll find sharp people there. Ever since um, uh, Trump made his executive order that allowed um, allowed the uh, a virtual consultation for all medicine and and even initial visits, uh, which I don't think that's been reversed, um, it's been possible to go anywhere and see anyone for a few hundred dollars. It's not even that expensive. So if you have a bad problem, it's not being resolved by your local guys. Now, everybody in America has the tools to do any kind of medicine. So if you're supervised by a doctor from um, a Mayo, right, you can have that doctor email your doctor and tell them what to do. And if they don't do it, they're violating a reasonable standard, which is established by the big centers. So that, that's the answer to your question. You have to be a bit of a detective and you have to be aggressive and you have to do a lot of reading yourself if you can. So how would... Like, what is some recommend like sources people can go to to learn more about like what's what's happening and how can they get a good quality doctor? How can they make sure they're not getting screwed? Okay, now I'm going to do the pitch here. Sure, right? five hundred references butchered by healthcare, and it's I mean I've written it, rewritten it, so it's easy to understand and. You can get that on Amazon or wherever books are sold. I've got it on multiple platforms. So that's the first hint, the first blues clue. I would go there and read the summaries. And then you can delve into the references. It's easier to click through using the ebooks, right? Which you, mm -hmm. I, just got, I just have them all in as links, uh, and it's easy. So, But um, short of that, uh, the great thing now is the patient blogs. You can go on these if you've got cancer or something else. You can get the truth from the patient blogs. Now, it's not all truth, but you can you, you can do a great deal of research without reading the, the medical primary medical literature. And these blogs will will I mean they've got five hour um, uh, training systems, and you know you go on. It's all free, and of course it's all sponsored by big pharma. But that doesn't mean you can't learn something. And so uh, I I think that's it's tremendously valuable. For whatever disease you have, you can go on and you can read about it, and you can talk to real patients, see what's worked for them. Now, I, I want to make one last pitch for ignoring or be downgrading uh, randomized control studies. Clinical experience means a great deal, and if you have someone who's had a lot of experience in your field, and they're good doctors who care about you, 
they may go off the rails and not recommend some toxic chemotherapy or something else. They may they may go a different route. And you got to listen to them, but you have to uh, make your own decisions and uh, ultimately take responsibility yourself. But then how Hopefully do we with the help decipher? Of a nurse or someone? What? How do we decipher if that's that's the case and they're not trying to recommend me to take something else because they're get because the doctors themselves are being persuaded for financial gain? Persuasion by financial gain. That's a good way to put it, uh, Greg. It's it's not that they're evil or not that they're necessarily criminals or anything like that. It's just that the insidious nature of financial incentives is everywhere in medicine now. So trying to sort this out is different for every case. You need to do your research, go to many sources, and, and try not to be a, too big a pain in the ass with your doctor. You have to, you need to pursue respectful relationships, even if you disagree with them or you lose respect for them. Do not uh, be rude or nasty or pushy. You know, this is not a, this is not a video with a police officer trying to antagonize them into doing something wrong. You're trying to produce good health effects for you mm -hmm. and everyone has something to offer. And doctors for all their flaws have enormous experience. We're, we're given so much responsibility and most of us are trying as hard as we can to, to uh, fulfill it. So do you have any recommendations towards naturopathic healing? Okay, so Greg, the thing I would say is what um, Goldacre said in his book, Bad Pharma. This is a quote, and he said, um, just because there are problems with aircraft design doesn't mean that magic carpets fly, <laughs> right? So I think the major uh, strength of naturopaths is they have the capacity sometimes to keep people away from the most toxic traditional therapies. And I was critical for most of my career of naturopaths and nutritionists, mm -hmm. but now I have seen how bad ordinary medicine is, how difficult it is to sort out what works and what doesn't. And I'm much less critical of naturopaths. And I also acknowledge that there are many treatments that are off of ordinary mainstream that actually do work. And they're, I mean, they're being run down because they're not profitable. They're not, you cannot patent bioidentical hormones, for example. And so those things have all been run down uh, by a variety of sources because they're not profitable. I mean, they're only profitable for um, compounding drug stores. And it, it's hard for physicians to even make, make a profit. Why was and it so I, difficult for uh, like doctors, including yourself, to see that there are benefits in naturopathic healing. You know, um, Greg, the the thing about being a doctor is it's incredibly consuming. And, mm. uh, you know, at this point, these guys are just, they have one nostril above the water and they, they barely can make ends meet uh, and keep up with what they're supposed to be doing. I don't know yeah. whether you're aware of this, but the requirements for the documentation now occupy 25 to 50%. It's probably closer to 50% of a doctor's time. In other words, clicking on the computer in order to get paid, they go, they all go home and they, they screw around with that stuff for hours on end. Um, now maybe in HMO systems like Kaiser is not so bad, but for the vast majority of doctors who are operating under the current system, they they are they are literally spending nearly fifty percent of their time messing around with the documentation systems, or they don't get paid. So um, wow. it's it's not easy for these guys. They are well trained. It is the most it, for a large group, and there's a million of us in America or something like that. 
for a large group, it's the best trained, most idealistic and smartest group we have. I mean, it's, there are smaller, smaller groups that are, that are more elite, but for a group this large, it's a, it's a very, very impressive bunch of people. Wow. They're trying their best, but it's, it's, it's not easy for them. The, the, the obstacles thrown in their way. I mean, if you work for an HMO, for example, and you don't prescribe enough statin drugs, statin drugs are a cholesterol drug, right? You don't have a large enough percentage of your patients on statin drugs. Sometimes you get censured, counseled, or even fired. Now, these drugs are not very effective. They're, they're like a $60 billion a year industry in the United States, but they're only less than 5% of the people that are on them really should be taking them because they are uh, somewhat harmful and they don't freaking work for anybody except for the people after a heart attack or with exceedingly high cholesterols. So with your experience, like what allowed you to arrive to your life philosophy and how did you arrive at that thought? Well, life philosophy is another, another whole issue. But, um, I, as I said, I kind of got slapped in the head by these, uh, shocking events and I was nearing retirement already. So I decided to start reading and I looked at one worm at a time, and I couldn't believe it. I finally got around to psychiatry. I had prescribed the SSRI class antidepressants like Prozac for my whole career, thinking they were efficacious. Well, I found out that they cause a lot of violence, suicide. They probably are responsible for a lot of these killings. And, I mean, they're phenomenally addictive. You cannot get off the damn things once you've, you've taken them for five or ten years. It's very hard. Um, so... And they're, you know, so I, I went from one thing to the other, and then I eventually decided to, um, you know, to write a book about it, and here I am. Well, let's wrap this up. I got one more question here. If you can explain the Mars on your record in response to the medical licensing and probation. Well, I think instead of that, I think we've already discussed that, but I think instead of that, I just want to um, finish with one thing, and that is, don't think that medicine is all bad. 50% of it works, and there are miracles to be held. Okay, because, yeah, I just wanted to understand because it looks like... This you, is routine for anyone who's had a fatality. Okay, but it, from what I've gathered, it looks like you broke your probation from what I'm understanding. No, I didn't break my probation. I uh, retired. I oh. fulfilled all the probationary requirements. Okay, because it shows two disciplinary actions that are found. Uh, violated terms of probation for 12-1-20, and then there's gross negligence 11-3-2017. I, I don't know anything about that. I, it sounds like allegations, but I, uh, I didn't this, break the it, terms. Of my. It's right here in front of us. I'm, I'm sharing it. This is uh, the 20, uh, this is 12-1-20, and this is the, the entire thing right here. Well, that, those were the original um, accusations, as I understand it. No, because this is a these legal. Are, these are definitely a legal too, process. Yeah, I, I, there's so, definitely. Greg, this I'm is, not sure. This is I'm not public sure information that you've decided to almost convert this into a hit piece because it's this not a, is not my primary focus. What my primary focus is is to make sure everybody gets the full scoop on everything, and if we're going to take advice from somebody we want to make sure that they are actually a good person and it, to me i'm just coming across the reviews like you have great reviews but then i'm seeing all this information i mean exactly if you can explain to me like what happened what why did you violate it what were you doing what was your last medical procedure 
Well, I, I'm, again, I'm not sure what you're referring to, and I don't think this is with your probation. With your probation, thing, that's yeah, that's I your credibility. Is right. that the way, or were you forced to retire? I decided to retire. It was time. You know, the average physician retires at 65. So, what's with your probation? Why did you break it, Greg? I don't think I'm willing to have this aired. And if you air this, um, I think that it's a it's a, a poor reflection on you. It's, I think that, it's live already. Yeah. It's almost like you're trying to get me to terminate the interview. I mean, it's if it, this is since this is live. I mean, I can say whatever I want. I I think that you're. I think that you were influenced by my review of your book, which was not favorable. Okay, I, and and then you you emailed me back and you said uh, that you weren't even going to interview me, and then you wow. changed your mind and interviewed me. So I think uh, this no. is like a revenge piece. No, not at all. I don't. I don't remember you even. My feeling a of your book. My feeling after reviewing wow. the book was that it was riddled with usage errors and that okay. it could be tightened up. I don't really and care. You, I just wrote it just because I wanted to do it for myself. That was for well, me. That's, that's fine. Yeah, so you can I, say whatever you want. That doesn't bother me. Right. But the thing is, so like, you broke your probation. You, were, you had people's lives in your hands. Two people died. We don't understand why or what happened. And we feel like you were one of those doctors that we're talking about are part of the corruption. Maybe you had a change of mind and you want to be better. But the first thing you need to do is you need to be vulnerable and be honest with everybody here and now. Well, I think that someone's credibility I, I, is more based on references than it's based on. Um, no, it's it's your so character. What you're I not even answering my question. You can judge me. You can judge me based on what you find in my book. I'm going to so judge look, you what I found online. I think you're judging me based on my review of your book. I don't really care what you left. What well, I see what is saying. these legal probation. But you that were you've very broken. offended when you text me back. I, I mean, text. I oh, so now you're that. now you're going to play this. You're going to make up this story? Show proof to everybody. Show proof well, that happened. Look, because I nothing happened. You, I haven't accused you of lying. You just accused me of lying. Well, yes, yeah, so it's right I, here. I don't, I don't think that that's cool to do in this interview format. So all my best, and uh, go ahead and air it just as it is. It's already being aired as we speak. Good. Good work. You've been listening to your transformation station, rediscovering your true identity and purpose on this planet. We hope you enjoyed the show and we hope you've gotten some useful and practical information. In the meantime, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at YTS, the podcast. We'll be back soon. Until then, this is your transformation station signing off.